one of the continual threats to faithful Christian living is the belief that we are most holy when we are alone. This thought drove many throughout church history to remove themselves from society altogether and to live a life of solitude. I think this thought also today drives many to put all the weight of their walk with the Lord on the scales of their private personal devotion. And I want to be clear, I believe in the extraordinary means of grace that flow to us through the spiritual regular disciplines of the Christian life. I think those are good needed things. But I'm not convinced that it's the sole factor to consider when we think about our personal holiness. When you think about your personal holiness, where does your mind run? Does it run to how often you're reading the Bible? Is that where it runs alone? Does it run to how well you're fighting sin? Is that the only place that you measure? I think those are included. But I wonder, when you think of your personal holiness and holy living, I wonder if you consider how you live in community with others. When the Bible speaks of our holiness, it most often accentuates how that holiness lives itself out in community. If you were to flip over to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, when Paul is writing to give us a picture of the Spirit-filled Christian, he says it involves how we sing to one another. It involves wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives the way Christ loved the church. Children obeying parents, slaves respecting their masters. In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, he gives examples as to what that may look like. And all of those examples are tearing down of the community of faith. When we allow bitterness to grow and slander one another and we fail to forgive. If you were here last week, you saw as we ended Galatians chapter 5, Verse 26, this is exactly how Paul argued as he's laying out this case for what it looks like to live a life that remains in the faith and that serves others in love. He calls that a life that is lived by the Spirit. And look at how Galatians chapter 5 ends. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. I mean, Paul is reminding us, how is it that we, lived, that we live a spirit-filled life? And the place where he goes to this group of Christians is not their private devotions. Though that clearly has implications for holy, holiness and holy living. But Paul goes to how you live in community with one another. If you were to keep reading the beginning of Galatians chapter 6, the sermon that we heard a couple of weeks ago, Paul continues to show these corporate implications when we live by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit, Galatians 6.1, happens whenever we gently restore others and one another 
struggling in sin. Galatians 6.2, living by the Spirit bears one another's burdens. And be, let's be clear, Galatians 6.4 says, when we live by the Spirit, we do examine our own hearts and our own self. Paul simply will not let us, in efforts to emphasize the importance of a personal relationship with God, he will not let us inadvertently diminish the importance of our corporate life together. And so when we live our lives walking by the Spirit, we will find that, yes, we are becoming more and more holy in private living, but that that holiness is informing how we live together in community. That holiness informs our life together with other Christians. And that has always been God's good design. And that's what Paul has made clear over the last few chapters. And as we get ever so close to the end of this letter, we find yet Paul again reminding us for this call of holy living by the Spirit and what that means for us as a church family. And so I've been praying that those two realities would be wed together in our mind. The need for Christians to grow in holiness and the reality that Christians who are growing in holiness are living life in community in God-honoring ways. Having a life that is rich in holiness is not less than having a life that's rich in private devotion. But it's more than that. It's more than that. And so let's pray this morning that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, would grow us and would make us exactly how He desires. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to You and we're thankful for your divinely inspired word. Uh, we are not left to, to try to come up with how we make sense of this world and how we rightly know you on our own. We're thankful that this word has been recorded and preserved. And as we now give attention to it, we pray that your word would conform us into your likeness, that our minds would be transformed because of this renewal as we sit under your word. God, would your word do its work by your spirit for your glory and our good. That's what we pray. And for that to happen, the sermon that is heard has to be far more effective than this one that is about to be preached. And so help me. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Galatians chapter 6. It will serve you as we walk through Galatians chapter 6 to see this is not us coming up with what we think. This is us trying to be faithful to what God has said. Galatians chapter 6. 6 will be the larger number normally in the corner of the page of your Bible. The smaller Numbers will be the verses, will be in verses 6 through 10 this morning. Paul continues to make his case about the freedom that Christians have in Christ. And he comes back, nearing the end of the letter, to one of the main points of the whole letter. And that is this, 
living by the Spirit is far superior than living by the flesh. That's really going to be the main point of our passage in verses 7 through 9. And that main point is going to be flanked by two applications, one in verse 6 and one in verse 10. And that's the sermon. Not, not we're done, but that's the outline of the sermon. Main point, two applications, one at the beginning, one at the end. And so what is the main point? Let's begin here. The main point of our passage today is this. Sow to the Spirit that you may reap eternal life. Sow to the Spirit, not S-O, not S-E-W, S-O-W. Sow to the Spirit that we may reap eternal life. Look again in verses 7 through 9 and just listen for how this point has emerged from this text. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You and I are familiar with this proverb, this life maxim that Paul uses here in our passage. You reap what you sow. If we could say it another way, it would be this. Your ideas and your actions, they have consequences. Your ideas and actions have consequences. God has so designed this world to be governed by certain laws that no matter what we desire, we are bound to those laws. And so if you and I were to go out right now, we said, I desire to plant and to grow watermelon. Like that's what we want. We want to see a harvest of watermelon and we go out and we plant corn seeds. Guess what will not happen? You will not get watermelon. No matter how you desire it, no matter how bad you want it, no matter how you try to manipulate it. Because there are certain laws, the law of harvest, for example, that God has so set this world to be run and governed by. But Paul has so much more in mind here than wanting to make sure that you get the crop that you desire. This isn't merely a case for harvest reaping. It's also a warning to be careful about where we sow seed. For where you and I make our investments will determine what comes from those investments. And so in the main point that Paul's making, he really contrasts two different soils and he contrasts two different crops that come from each soil. It would serve us well to consider this. So look again at verse 7. Verse 7 begins with this warning. And the warning is this. Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. And this is in context of talking about this, this law of reaping or of sowing and reaping. God will not stand for being played. 
God will not stand for being scorned. And so I believe what Paul is saying is he's issuing a dire warning that, that should resonate and should grab the attention of these Galatian Christians. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, it should grab your attention. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this warning should grab your attention. Don't think that you can say, yes, life in the Spirit is what I want, all the while living for the flesh. Don't think that you can sow to the flesh and then somehow think that you're going to reap that which only comes from the Spirit. You cannot outwit God because the crop that you plant in the soil will inevitably sprout forth every harvest season. And let's just be clear. You may be able to fool everyone else around you for a season. But rest assured on the promise of the Word of God that God will not be mocked. You will not fool God. And in due time, the law of the harvest will make clear what it is that you and I have been sowing. In verse 8, he's going to give a little bit more elaboration, a little bit more context so that we can understand this warning that God will not be mocked. In verse 8, he contrasts the soils and the crops. And the first uh, that he introduces us to is the soil of the flesh. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. We've stated this over the last couple of weeks as we've walked through this letter. When Paul references the word flesh, he's not talking about physical bodies. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about an orientation to the world that insists on us being at the center. He's talking about this worldview that says, I want to do what I want to do. I want to insist on my way. The flesh is that selfish desire that seeks to establish you and I as the sun so that everything else in the universe would revolve around us. And here's the thing. This is the nature that we, we inherited from the first humans, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given the gracious privilege of communing with God, being with God in paradise. And yet they would not yield to God's good rule over them. They rebelled. They thought they knew best. They placed what they desired over what God desired. And in doing so, what they thought was merely one decision spiraled and sent all of humanity and into creation, uh, and, and all of creation into a descent away from God that they could not have seen coming. And every time you make the same decision, you're hardwired to make this decision. This is what it means to be human. 
is to have this sin nature passed down. We were conceived in it. There are a lot of things that you need to learn. You do not have to learn what it means and how to insist on you being the center of everything. You're hardwired to know this. You insist on living life this way. And what you may think is just one small decision or just one area of life really has cosmic implications. It has eternal implications. Because it's, it's showing an unwillingness to submit to God's good rule and reign. And if you were to go to any country and you were, commit, you were to commit treason at the highest level, the implications for that are great. Well, think about the implications of treason against an eternal God. It's punishment for all of eternity. It's separation. It's that good, holy God's just anger and righteous hatred for sin poured out on everyone who's guilty. That same reality plays itself out when you do not submit to God and you insist on life on your own terms. And so when Paul says flesh, that is what he's meaning. And so again, just a caution this morning. Don't know where you stand with the Lord. But many of us, I believe, are sowing seeds into the field of our lives, and sadly, we're not even thinking about reaping. But we just think, I'm just going to live how I want to live. As though there is no law of the harvest. You will reap what you sow. Or maybe even worse, some of us are sowing one thing into the field of our lives, and we're expecting like fools expecting to get something completely different in return. I mean, our world is bent to make you think that you need to be at the center and that your agenda ought to be the terms by which everything is carried out by your power for your glory. And if you buy into that, you are reaping the flesh. Uh, you are sowing to the flesh and you will reap corruption. If you were to go back and look at the list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, this is just characteristic of the flesh. This is what you will reap if you sow to the flesh. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And don't forget the warning. Because if this is what you reap, Galatians 5.21, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you were to go back to Galatians chapter 4 and remember Paul's argument of just saying, don't, don't put yourself under the law. Because when you put yourself under the law, you were setting up a system of trying to be made right with God in which... It's contingent on what you do. And he gives the example of, of Ishmael and Isaac. And he said, do you remember? I made a promise. And, and the promise was that I would, I would bring about the promised son. 
And what did Abraham and Sarah do? They tried to grab life by the horns to produce this son on their own. And Paul referenced and likened that son, Ishmael, to being of the flesh. It's just, it's, it's, it's indicative of a life that's seeking to say, I know what I want. I have to do whatever I can do in order to get it. But Isaac, Isaac would be a child of promise, of the Spirit. It was only something that God could do. And so when you and I sow to the flesh, the only question that we're thinking about is, well, what do I want and how much will I use what I have in order to get it? When we sow to the flesh, we are nurturing sinful thoughts and attitudes and deeds. And so again, just think about your holiness and think about the implications here. Every time you nurse bitterness, every time you hold a grudge, every time you wallow in self-pity, every time you indulge lust, every time you choose life apart from God, when you squelch the Holy Spirit, you are sowing seed to the flesh. And that will yield decay. It will yield corruption. You will see a decay of distrust and loneliness and indifference and cynicism and strained relationships and hardness of heart. You may even see a decay of rejecting Christ altogether, ending up in utter, utter corruption. I mean, it's shocking that some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they are so far away from God. Why their hearts are hardened. Why they don't have deeper joy in the Lord. Friends, every yes you say to sin is a no you are saying to the Spirit. Every lack of discipline for the purpose of godliness is ground gained for worldliness. And so, fellow Christians, do the hard work that's required. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought this whole letter is about Paul saying it's not about me working. It's not about you working to earn anything. This letter is about you evidencing that you do indeed belong. And good news, Paul has reminded us, you have been given the Holy Spirit in order to do what you can't naturally do. There is victory with the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that there is no fight. And Paul's going to say this in this passage. Christian brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. No matter what it's costing you, no matter how hard it is, don't grow weary. Why? Because we believe in the law of the harvest. That what we're sowing, we will indeed reap. When you sow to the flesh, Paul says you reap corruption. And this isn't like, this isn't a picture of some 
government official taking a bribe under the table. No, this is the word that was used for crops that are rotting. If you were to read Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, David makes this prayer and he says, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow your Holy One to to be put to death. You could spend your whole life building your resume, building your storehouse, building your fame, living by your agenda, and you get to the end of your life and you have all of that. You even have a family who loves you and realize that that all you have is vanity. Living life on your terms, all you will do is die with you. As long as you are the point of your life, you are sowing corruption, decay, and death. And that is what you will reap. Corruption, decay, and death. In 1799, Andrew Fuller preached on this passage. Andrew Fuller was William Carey's partner in ministry, and he pointed out that future misery will consist greatly in a lot of reflection. That much of what will happen in terms of God's wrath on unbelievers in a literal place called hell will be their continual remembrances of how they sinned against God. And this is what Fuller said. The unbeliever thinks that he can thumb his nose at God, but as he reaps the measure of what he will sown, he will soon remember that God cannot and will not be mocked. To have incurred the displeasure of a God whose nature is love must furnish reflections which cannot be endured. Whatever you pour your self into. If at the end of the day, self is at the center, you are literally wasting your life away. Don't sow to the flesh. Instead, sow to the spirit. That's the second soil that he introduces, the soil of the spirit. And so again, if we're going back and thinking about Hagar, Galatians chapter 4, Abraham, Isaac taking matters into their own hands, then what is Isaac, the son of promise, son of the Spirit? It's trusting God. It's yielding to God. It's waiting on God. It's believing that what God says is true, and he can be trusted then to bring about the means. The Spirit represents God's power at work in the world, especially in His children. God's Spirit teaches us to trust God as a child trusts his own father. Galatians chapter 4, the beautiful picture of adoption. The Spirit teaching us to cry out, Abba, Father. God's Spirit bears fruit in our lives as we trust in God. And so when you think of the Spirit, think of God's power, fulfilling God's promise, set out by God's good purpose, all for God's glory. That's what the Spirit does all the time. And so what you want to do is to put your resources in the soil of the Spirit. 
You want to bank on His Spirit. You want to bank on the Spirit's work, not on what you can do on your own. And so really, Paul has helped us. He gives us this visual. Imagine every morning you wake up. And every morning, there are two buckets that are sitting beside your bed. And with every action and with every attitude, with every thought, the question that is before you is, which bucket of seed are you going to pull from and begin to sow? Are you going to pull from this, the bucket seeds of the flesh? Are you going to pull from the bucket seeds from the Spirit? Sowing to the Spirit is cultivated through killing sin, fighting our sin. Sowing to the Spirit occurs whenever we do everything that we possibly can to get more of Jesus. Every time we say yes to Jesus and no to the flesh and unbelief and sin, we are sowing to the Spirit. And if we sow, we will reap a harvest of deep joy a harvest of true satisfaction, a harvest of increasing freedom from sin, a harvest of unity with the Lord. Some of you this morning, I believe, are here tasting and experiencing that bitter taste because of the seeds that you have sown. And there's good news for you this morning. The one who's deserving of God's wrath because you have rebelled against the king of all kings, there is mercy that's available to you. And it's available to you because of the perfect work of Jesus on your behalf. Every way in which you failed, Christ did not. And for every sin that you're deserving of bearing the, the wrath of God for, Christ endured and he absorbed. And for every way that death gets the last word for you because of your sin, Christ triumphed over death, raised bodily on the third day. If you're not a Christian this morning, because of that work of Christ and how now the indwelling of His Holy Spirit helps His people, because of that glorious good news and hope, you don't have to taste the bitterness of death and sin any longer. You can know the taste of true freedom and forgiveness. And that only comes, not by trying to work your way into good graces, it only comes when you throw all of your trying down and you place your, your faith, not just, yeah, you believe this could be true. I'm saying you're thinking and you're believing that if everything else in the world falls apart, if you're wrong, I'm still going all in on believing that Jesus' work is sufficient. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to remind you and call you to turn from the sin that has gotten you into this self-centered living predicament. Turn from it. Be willing to forsake it. Go to Jesus for forgiveness for all of it. And trust that His work 
will be the work that makes you able to stand before a holy God, not be condemned and judged, but be accepted and forgiven. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. And if you have any questions about what that means, talk to any person here. It would be our joy to explain to you just the goodness of a God that loves like this. Give up your sin and fly to Jesus by faith. But notice what sowing to the Spirit reaps. Look at verse 8. It reaps eternal life. And this is why Paul is making this point. Whatever you have, both in your life, in your trust, in your resources, everything you have, put in the soil of the Spirit, because with the Spirit, it doesn't fail. It's only corruption when you sow to the flesh. It is eternal life when you sow to the Spirit. You want to be there. You want to invest all of your life there. And that work will not stop until we get to glory. And then the perfected life that we have, it goes on forever and ever and ever. God has given us an answer to the corruption that we have brought upon ourselves. And that answer is the work of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. If you will give up the pursuit of a name that will live on in this earth, God will give you a name that will never die. Romans 8 echoes here. As Paul is just talking about what it means... Verse 38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, if you are a child of God, preserved by the Holy Spirit, then nothing can separate you from His love, not even when you breathe your last The great enemy of death is no longer the great enemy to those who belong to Christ. Because in the same way that Christ triumphed over death, so too will all who repent and believe. When we are to God as precious children, we don't have to be afraid that death will separate us or destroy us. I mean, it's what David did pray. In Psalm 1610, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Because of Christ, that is true of all who are in Christ. I'm helped to, to even just consider and ponder further on this idea of you reap eternal life if you sow to the Spirit. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus defined eternal life this way as he was praying to his Father. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is this personal, intimate knowing of God. It's not merely this vaccine against death. You get to know God. 
and it's not interrupted at death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Physical death, because of the work of Christ, sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, physical death does not turn eternal life into temporary life. It goes on. And you just begin to think, and if you, again, it, it was, my, my soul was served this week just to stop and to consider the scope of eternal life. And just thinking, surely at some point, I mean, there's nothing on this earth that can hold my attention. How in the world am I not going to grow bored at some point in all of eternity? Jonathan Edwards, so helpful here. He pondered that question, will we grow dull and boring? And Edwards wrote, the fountain that supplies the joy and the delight which the soul has in seeing God, that fountain is infinite. The understanding may extend itself as far as it will. It, it does take its flight into an endless expanse and it dives into a bottomless ocean and it may discover more and more the beauty and the loveliness of God, but it will never exhaust that good fountain. When you think of eternal life, you get God unending, unceasing, never getting to the bottom of all of his goodness and perfections. Edwards continues, we can never, by soaring and ascending, come to the height of the love of God. We can never, by descending, keep going down and reach the bottom and the depth of it, or by measuring, know the length and the breadth of it. Let the thoughts and the desires extend themselves as far as they will, but in eternity there's enough space for that. How blessed, therefore, are they who do see God, who are coming to this exhaustless fountain after they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God for millions of ages, it will not grow into a dull story. The preciousness of delighting in God will be as exquisite then, millions of ages later, as it was for the first time. Why in the world... Would you sow to anything else that doesn't lead to this type of inexhaustible goodness? What do you want to reap in the future? And is that consistent? Is your answer consistent with what you're sowing? in the present. And so having established this principle as the main idea, Paul gives us two examples on the bookends, verse 6 and verse 10, to just remind us of what it may look like to sow to the Spirit. And he gives it to us in the example of the ministry of the Word and the ministry of care, both of them having to do with the resources in which we have been given. Again, the measure for holiness is one of corporate implications. So often we make 
obedience in the Christian life more complicated than it needs to be. These examples are tremendously practical, and I think they will help us live out the truth that we profess to believe. The first example is this. Support the right preaching of the word. Support the right preaching of the word. We see this in verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. If I could just summarize what verse 6 is saying, I would put it in this way. Trusting the Spirit to work through the word is a worthy investment. Trusting the Spirit to work through the Word is a worthy investment. Uh, This is similar to elsewhere. Paul has written to make clear uh, his understanding of the goodness that happens whenever God's people, the church, support those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, would encourage you to look there. Luke chapter 10, the words of Jesus. Also, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the work of an elder and the responsibility of the congregation to encourage that work. Where it is possible, churches should support those who are devoting and have devoted time to studying and preparing sermons that would feed the flock. And here's the thing. This is not an American idea that's built on our desire desire for knowledge or on our, it's not predicated on our country's wealth. Now, this is something that we've seen from the very beginning of the local church. Having full-time men that labor in this way is not novel. It's as tried and true as it was in Paul's day. But what the church today in the West is is at risk of is not we shouldn't pay pastors, but losing the beauty of God's good intention for such labor. Uh, Most commentators would agree that, that what Paul has in mind here is money when he talks about sharing share all good things with the one who teaches him. I don't think he's meaning share your life, share your time. There may be implications in those things. And and, and this is the other thing that's helpful here in verse 6. The focus of this is not on the preacher and his worth. Paul teaches elsewhere that it's the, it's the members, the Christians that are doing the real work of ministry. Pastors who labor for money primarily are to be warned and avoided. Churches who sit as consumers while pastors do all the work should be rebuked. This isn't about the preacher being worth your investment. It's about the word being worth the investment. The whole point here, Paul is saying, is living by the Spirit, kind of this idea of sowing and reaping, reaping and sowing. The whole point here is to leverage your life and resources to support where the Spirit is at work. Because what the Spirit is doing and where the Spirit is at work, it does not fail. 
And so if you've got a limited amount of resources, then let's throw our resources in the place where the Spirit is at work. Where is He working? The Word tells us over and over again. The Spirit is at work as the Word goes forth, and the Spirit is bringing forth faith on the back of that preached Word. When you and I hear the Word, the Spirit is working. It's wor- it works its way The Word works its way through the life of the congregation. If you believe that the Spirit is at work in the right preaching of the Word, then put your finances where that is happening. It's been an advantage throughout church history. The churches would be able to support some. They would be able to spend full time in the Word in order to feed the flock. Mining out the treasures of God's word in order to feed others. I don't know if there's a better investment that you can make with your resources. And this task doesn't play well with other tasks. So it's good for the church when some can spend their time and have their needs met by the church in order to serve the church in this way. If you believe The Holy Spirit works through the Word. And that's intended to happen through the local church. Then I would just challenge you. Spend your money there. Be marked by generosity there. With so many options as to where you can invest your money, Christians have never not viewed the local church as the primary means by which they would give to see the Spirit of God accomplish the mission of God for the glory of God. And so just because there are more options today shouldn't distract us from the primacy of the Word going forth through the church. Whatever else you will support I pray you will be convinced biblically that it is your privilege and responsibility to always support the work of the word going forth through the agent and the vehicle of the local church. John Piper asked, when you get your paycheck, do you look to the spirit for how to turn that money for the best advantage for God's kingdom? Or do you invest it in the field of your flesh? for your own private use. And Piper says, one of the places where the Spirit has promised to yield 30, 60, 100-fold is through the right preaching of His Word. It never returns void. And so let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we shall reap we shall reap eternal life. And church, it's easy for me to stand up here and challenge you with this because this is a congregation that does this well. Can we grow without a shadow of a doubt? You have been faithful to show that this is a priority for this church. May we continue to excel still more. Second example on the back end, Do good to all, especially to other Christians. Verse 10. Do good to all, especially to other Christians. 
trusting the Spirit means that we share our resources. We not only invest it where the Spirit is at work, taking the Word and breathing life into dead hearts and growing Christians, but we also take our resources and we meet the needs of one another. Let us do good. Again, commentators agree that he still has money in mind, using what God has given us to help those who have a need especially those that are of the household of faith. If you were to go back and look at what happens when the church is birthed in Acts chapter 2, what you will see is they're just sharing. They are united in mind. They're sharing everything they have, and they're meeting needs that one another has. You go to Acts chapter 4, and you see the same thing. You then go to Acts uh, chapter 11, and you look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and you begin to realize, wait a minute, this isn't just for Christians in the same local church. It's all Christians everywhere. We are leveraging what we have in order to meet the needs of those around us, particularly those of the household of faith. We are a part of how God is going to meet the needs of others. And he warns us, don't grow weary in doing good. You may spend your money this way, and you may feel like it is wearing you out. but your continual fighting to not sow to the flesh, continuing to sow to the Spirit, to help others in need, to that first impulse, not to be what can I get, but how can I give? Not what do I need, but how do I help meet another's needs? Use this opportunity to take up needs around you. Be creative in ways in which you can meet needs around you. I think this is a great opportunity, something that we don't talk often about, but to, to take up this conversation in the friendships that you have, in the community group that you have, and just let people ask you about your spending. Is it clear that we're sowing to the Spirit? Give someone access to the numbers. Let them look in. Let them ask you questions. Freedom in the gospel does this. And a life that's marked by the Spirit perseveres. So keep sowing, keep going, keep doing good, especially to other Christians. Be hospitable. Look to, look to lead someone to Christ. Move towards someone else. Give to another. There are seasons where you will find that you need it, and there will be more seasons where you find that you can give it. Giving to help others. Failure to do so is the opposite of a spirit-filled life. And so believers should use their monies first to meet the needs of other Christians and then meet the needs of the world at large around them. And so when it came to Paul's understanding of what it meant to be holy and to walk by the Spirit, it was not an option to not think about how that impacted and affected others. It's amazing how often we find the money for the things that we value. May our spending reflect that. And may it reflect the truth that in all good things we are sowing to the Spirit for His glory and for the good of others.